you don't have to morally believe it's okay to be trans, but if we can come to the center, to this gray area, this open field, and say, all right, let's align on not dehumanizing this subject and really looking at what it is. Now you can argue and be like, this policy would work better for human rights. No, this policy would work better for human rights. I would rather have that argument than each side vilifying each other and be like, the left is out to destroy our children and our humanity because they want to take away our religion the right is out to you know destroy all goodness and has no uh human empathy or compassion that is not fucking true good day dear friends and damn givers i'm nick lapara and this is the let's give a damn podcast as many of you already know This is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn in so many amazing, unique, and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play on that little mobile phone of yours. Thank you for showing up this week. I hope you're doing well, and I'm so incredibly glad you're here. If you're like me, and I know many of you are like me because I've heard the feedback over the years, if you're like me and grew up in a conservative, evangelical environment, then you likely have a ton of sexual trauma that you're still working through. Growing up, I was told that I shouldn't have sex before getting married, that I definitely shouldn't masturbate, that being gay is a sin, and that God forbids the gays from ever thinking about getting married, and so much more. But then I grew up. Then I started to see so many people that committed the aforementioned, quote, horrible sins, unquote, and they were doing okay in life. In fact, they were doing more than okay. And then a little later in life, I started seeing all of these pastors and leaders that spent the majority of their time scaring the hell out of us growing up by telling us all the things we shouldn't and couldn't do. I started seeing so many of them cheating on their wives, getting caught distributing child porn, hurting their children, raping kids in youth group. And I say rape here intentionally because having sex as an adult with a teenager that you're supposed to be caring for isn't just having sex, it's rape. So on and so forth. I started to see all these things and I was left very confused and also very interested to figure out what the church was getting wrong and why. Over the past few years, my guest this week, the wonderful Brenda Davies, aka God is Gray, aka In the Gray, has been helping thousands and thousands of Christians and non-Christians alike process religious trauma, deconstruct their faith in healthy ways. She's helped these people think through sexual trauma and sexual healing and so much more. Brenda truly champions curiosity, compassion, and healthy debate. Also, I love Brenda's platforms, God is Gray, and the developing in the gray platform, because whether we want to admit it or not, most of life is gray and not black and white. Most of life is questions. Most of life is not firm and solid answers, which I've grown to love. It keeps me humble. It keeps me learning. It keeps me asking questions. Most pride and ego and downfall comes when we are so sure something is right or wrong that we will do anything to maintain that position, to maintain the existence of that truth. Brenda also authored a book called On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel, a fantastic book that has helped me and that has helped so many people that I know. 
And you can get that book right now in hardcover, a beautiful hardcover book for $3, three fucking dollars, my friends, on Amazon right now. And I usually try to steer people toward local bookstores. Please buy from your local bookstores whenever possible. But you simply can't beat $3 on Amazon right now. As you can probably tell from most of this intro so far, this conversation gets real. So just to throw up real quickly, a not safe for work sign and a trigger warning for the very adult themed topics we are about to address and for the rawness with which we address them. I do that. Brenda and I have this kind of conversation because I believe it's necessary. We need to stop feeling shame and being shamed for having conversations like this. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me why you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Brenda Davies. Let's go. The thing about these spaces where people are trying to push equality forward and human rights forward and human dignity and all of these things that we are all so earnest in wanting now that we've learned for the very first time in our stupid lives that these systems exist, if you do not have permission to mess up once, even by way of language that was like mm -hmm. expressed with care or earnest, or even if it was like set off the cusp, it's like there's so much in our language that we are being asked to eradicate. And I'm completely open to that. And I'm more than willing to work to make sure that I am honoring the people around me. Um, but it takes a little bit of time for a girl born in the 80s to get rid of, hi guys, <laughs> like I'm just learning that's offensive. There's also a lot of contradictions. Some people are like, it's not fucking offensive. It's like, stop. Yep. And there is like this, this balance is like, we're sifting through a forest and the trees to figure out like, and you don't want to say, oh, your point is invalid or your point is valid, but there's also so little room for opinion you know, like you could talk to a black person who's deeply offended by a sentiment or a joke. And then you talk to another black person who is like, I thought it was hilarious. Yep. And that's the thing, too. It is it's racist and diminishing or, or whatever it is, any category of people. Like yeah. if you consider them a monolith and say, I heard four black people say this last week on a podcast. So therefore, black people would say and it's just like. Um, we are trying to do the opposite here. Like a yeah. part of equality is recognizing that there are no monoliths and it's only to me about human rights. That's what we're meant to be fighting for. Like imagine getting to a place of such absolute equality that we can start joking around about everything again. Or, you know, imagine that we can start joking around about things like this now like Chelsea Handler or Amy Schumer sure, yeah. or Jar George Carlin or like a million other comedians have done, Dave Chappelle, like whether or not you respect what they're saying or doing or how they're joking about it or why, that is humor that diffuses these conversations and does ignite them. And comedians have a really beautiful way of being like, 
sorry, I'm not sorry, because I've noticed so many of them take true accountability, but then I'm tro- always trying to sift through what is accountability and what is shame. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. shame is stifling and paralyzing and accountability like motivates. Like I've seen Chelsea Handler change drastically since she was pranking people on that girl's show or something to like the woman you hear on a podcast today. And she's imperfect. I'm sure tons of people don't like her, but anyone who says things, the things we're like afraid to say, I'm so grateful for them because then I get to watch them be chastised for it. And then I get to learn. So we as public figures are often putting ourselves in that space to be like, okay, so I did the thing that's fucked up. And now you all get the privileged bird's eye view of pointing at me and saying, look how deeply and profoundly you fucked up. But it's only because I was willing to stand there in the first place. Yeah. And I respect anyone who is standing there. Did you used to have, because we have similar backgrounds in that we grew up in, and, and I want to hear more about your Christian upbringing story. Ugh. But <laughs> um, did you ever, has your even relationship with comedy evolved over the years? Mm-hmm. Because I these these button pushers that we're talking about um i used to get very offended oh yeah when they would talk about i used to not understand comedy to the point where they you know whether it was you mentioned many of the the transgressors many of the people that are always saying something and there and you know there's growth and there's whatever maturity and there's yeah seeing the apologies or the whatever along the way but I used to get very offended at the kinds of things they would joke about, whether it was whether it was of the sexual nature, like rape, or if, if it was you know racist stuff or whatever. The things that would come up, and it wasn't until honestly, it was it was post. Is this true? It was after it was around George Floyd time, and it was uh, Chappelle's second to last special. Okay. Um, he was like outside. Yes. Okay. Yeah that I really, I had a friend of mine who's an immigrant and they said to me, they, I was talking through my experience with comedy and how I want to get it, but I don't. And this is me as like a 35, 36 year old. This like I'm not a so boy, like I'm older yeah. and, and someone who's like, who says fuck shit and damn and like talks about all sorts of things in the podcast and in public. Like it's not well, like I'm, I'm it's, it's not like I'm a prude. Like I'm not like a, <laughs> like a nice Christian boy. But also I was like, you can't joke about rape. You can't joke about this. You can't joke about that. And then I sat in it for a while and I, they challenged me to, and I just sat in this idea that we need, like, first of all, artists are always taking risks. Artists are pushing buttons. They are showing us what could be. Uh, They are showing us what has been and what it could be. And they are taking the risks that other that other types of people in society that are in politics or, you know, business leaders, they're not taking those risks. Artists say, whether it's a songwriter or a comedian, they're taking risks mm-hmm. and they're saying stuff that is supposed to, you know, like make you yeah, feel a little doing it on off. Purpose. So all that as context, did you ever have that? Or am I, or am I, are, are we not <laughs> tracking together with that? Okay. Well, one thing I could go on this forever. Remind me to tell you about this documentary hysterical, but I do. There's two things you're bringing up for me. One is I recently learned about this black comedian. I'm forgetting what era it was, but this is like deep in 
recognizably visible racist times for even the the most ignorant person, you know? Like it was just um, a real segregation. I want to say, I don't know, 40s, 50s, whatever, back in the day, and maybe even sooner. And this comedian was going into exclusively white clubs as a black man and poking fun at their racism. And somehow he was really balancing this line so delicately and beautifully. I actually think I learned about him through the Bill Cosby documentary Um, that, you know, they also like that was setting up to say like he became really judged, I think, for being in that space and probably suffered a lot of things that people who are pushing envelopes today would go through. Um, and then Bill Cosby came in and wanted to make it all like, I'm not poking any, you know, he was like really clean cut in his comedy, ironically, but like comedians are so often working for advocacy in ways that we are not recognizing. And it's like, it's like the jester at court, like poking fun at the king. Like if there's no one there to be like, like, what do we really think about this? Like, do we have to retire the word retarded? You know, like standing on stage and saying something like that, like I would be like, but at the same time, I've heard conversations like that in real life. And I know people are talking about it and some people are genuinely confused about things. And like comedians are like, Oh, no one's going to say this. I'm going to say this. Right. And and how can you not appreciate that as, like at the end of the day? And then on the converse relating to what you just said, which is interesting, is that I recently had a memory that um I was a great admirer of Bill Cosby because my dad worked in inner city Philly at this exclusively like black and Puerto Rican school and <laughs> I mean, I feel terrible saying this now, but my dad's like countenance, the way he treated children, the way he treated his family was so much like Bill Cosby. I loved the Cosby show. It looked Mm -hmm. like my father to Mm -hmm. me and I appreciated just the way he was. I don't know. He just like really spoke to me in my heart and I loved him. And I remember I was like eight or nine years old and I had an elementary school teacher And she had us watch a special of Bill Cosby. I would love to find it again now with my adult lens. But I went up to the teacher afterwards. I was always a little (laughs) burgeoning SJB, apparently. SJW. And um, but I walked up and I was like, that was so offensive. I don't know why you would show us that. Because I remember that he was pointing out people by race and talking about racial stereotypes And for some reason, eight or nine year old me found that very offensive. Mm. So I think now, I don't know, I haven't watched it since, but I've noticed other comedians following that who will poke at racial stereotypes, Chelsea Handler being one of them, you know, with the purpose of actually making fun of racism, not making fun of the race, but also giving grace and space to that anyone that's in a marginalized group that takes offense to that kind of joke. I am like, take all the offense you need. You have like, I have no right to determine whether or not that's appropriate. Balancing out this idea that like, well, someone is saying these things and at least it's like pushing us forward in the best cases or making us like realize our biases. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, I, 
my love for what? I'm just, it's just funny because I can't believe you just recently realized comedy is funny. Like what? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. uh, So in the past two or three years, I've always been someone who cares and wants to see meaningful change happen in the world and always pushing for that. My whole career has been, you know, first in the nonprofit space. And then in the last five years, variety of ways of helping people. So I've always been a helper. And I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a, to a fault, I'm a bleeding heart, you know, like I'm classic bleeding heart, like leftist, like yeah. want to help everybody and everything, you know, few things make me happy. Everything makes me sad. Like every, <laughs> you know, if I start thinking about all the shit happening just in the in one mile radius of where we are right now, there's a whale dying somewhere. Ooh, I know. Yeah. Like I there's, know. Ho- there's people that are experiencing homelessness, like within a stone's throw of here and people that are hungry. Some kids getting beat. Like if I start thinking about all that, so things like racism and rape and all kinds of things like that aren't funny to me. Mm-mm. And when I go, there was a there was a period, and I think I'm getting better. I believe I'm getting better. But there was a period where I was no fun to be around as a damn giver. Because there's so much to do and there's so much to fix and the world's going to shit and how do we do it all? And everybody should be spending every moment of their lives fixing stuff and helping out and serving and giving. And that's not practical. We've got kids and student loans and jobs. And yes, all of us should be figuring out who we are and how we should be making the world a better place and how we should lead the planet better than we found it. Totally, everybody. Small ways, little ways. Some people are doing it full time. Some people are doing it a few minutes a week or a day or whatever. But I think it was around that time that I was about to go off a cliff of just being like the worst kind of, you know, before we start, got on the mic, we started talking. These people that we become the thing that we've been, we become the thing that we actually hate where we, we become so politically correct and so we want to do everything so perfectly and we're actually hurting ourselves, right? Because nobody can do things perfectly. Mm. So we're actually setting ourselves up for failure by trying to make everything perfect and by trying to do something all the time. So I was in a season of just like, everybody, if you're having fun, basically, I mean, it comes down to that. It's like, don't have fun. Like, we've, there's work to do. Mm. And comedy's fun. You're inherently laughing at all kinds of things, everyday situations, relationships, and then really talented individuals crafting stories into there and in the Chelsea Handler kind of way, making fun of this, that, and the other to point out how shitty and stupid and ridiculous racism is. I didn't get that mm-hmm. until two or three years ago. I didn't get that that even existed because I was so, my, my wife, if she, if she were sitting here today, she said, Nick is the most literal person you know. Everything <laughs> has to make sense. My, my phrases, how I talk about things. I have one daughter who is like me very literal it's like doesn't get jokes very easily because that didn't make any sense Uh. that's not how things work so and so like i don't get jokes very easily it wasn't until recently also that i started watching more comedy films i didn't want to watch comedy films life's too heavy to watch comedy films Uh. but i'm just healthier in this new like i'm getting healthier in this new iteration where it's like hey if i want to be around for the next 70 years doing this work seeing meaningful change happen one little step at a time, I need to lighten the fuck up. <laughs> I need to just chill out, yeah. smoke some more weed, watch the comedy special, 
take the night off, yeah. kick my feet back and watch a three-hour film without thinking about all the work I could have gotten done yeah. in the meantime. Yes. I think that I wonder if what was so unappealing or upsetting about comedy is that it doesn't involve a mobilizing statement. Like a, a comedian will just be like, look at this horrible point of racism and then let everybody laugh and move on to the next thing. And they don't like qualify like, so go support WWW. And what we don't recognize in these social justice realms that have become in many ways like what's the opposite of productive? Um, <laughs> Anti-productive. Yeah, unproductive. Unproductive. <laughs> Un oh my God. Excuse <laughs> it's an me. an easy word. Un unproductive. Yeah, okay. Yes. Unproductive um, at best and like toxic at worst. Yeah. Because um, you really do have to like give people space to learn concepts and you have to believe that if you put out a piece of art, like all of the movies that have been so confronting, like if you look generationally and find out like, you know, I, I can't think of examples, but like movies that used to be incredibly impactful to people and they were just outraged and they got banned. And then if a 12 year old watched it today, they wouldn't even like blink an eye. They'd yep. be like, this is tame. I watch euphoria, yep. bitch, you know, yeah, like, right. But that just goes to show that artists are always artists, not always, but like, you know, when someone has a tendency to care about something as an artist, and that is a part reason why they create art, then they will be motivated to push the envelope to say the things that other people either don't want to say or don't even have the words to express them. Like I wrote my book on her knees to detail this over, you know, like 20 year deconstruction journey of my sexuality and womanhood and the lies I was told about my value as a virgin and all of these things. And it's like, we can't blame people who are just starting those journeys. Like someone needs to step out and say it first. And then when people haven't like caught up, that's the other thing. Like, you will be passionate about certain things and you should find those things and be like, I really care about environmentalism. Let people focus on the, the thing that resonates with yep. them because they will be able to do so with great passion and conviction. When you are spread thin over 40,000 like different causes, then it become everything gets lost and you get exhausted. Like during the George Floyd murder and when there was all of these instances of police brutality and murder and all of these black bodies that we are seeing and these violent images like on Sean King's page, et cetera, like people kept demanding, like post this person, post this person, post this, this person. But I intuitively knew I was like, no, I, I have to pick one person because, mm. and then I, I deeply wish many people would pick one person and, um, or at least in the like leadership or like people who have a, a voice or whatever. And, um, I don't know. You just like this, this false belief that you need to, especially in the performative arena of online behavior, have to champion every cause and know yeah. the ins and outs of every single cause just makes you less impactful, less passionate, less focused, less educated on you can't focus on 50 things. It's especially bad what you're pointing out, which is so, so true. And I've been unfortunately a part of that in the past and still there's lingering. Um, 
is that on social media, which is the most unforgiving thing society has ever partaken in, it's also the greatest thing, but it's very unforgiving. It's very medieval. It's, it's very, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very horrible at times. Is that what you just pointed out the very end, you said it's impossible to not just even care about these things. We can generally care about 50 things, but we can't go deep enough to know what the hell we're talking about. So what you have with these, you know, left and right, these, these warriors, these people that are like, we're going to fix the world. Well, you don't know enough about that issue. So you inevitably, and usually it happens pretty quickly because your, your knowledge on this subject is an inch deep. Yeah. Is that you post something, you say something, you share something, you, you say, everybody go follow this person. You do something that shows that your knowledge is an inch deep and you lose credibility. And then if you're doing that over the, over the course of 40 different issues or even 10 big issues or even five big issues, you're going to lose credibility five times. People are eventually just going to write you off and say, this person doesn't actually care. They cared for the sensation that came with caring about that thing. They cared for the noise that it made. But And also they can definitely care. Right. But do we need to – right, 100%. But does that – how – how how loud and vocal are we being about these things? Are we saying I'm a an environmentalist or I'm gonna stick through this until all prisons are shut down or until the police are abolished or whatever the thing is, till everybody is not till everyone has a home, everyone's mouth is fed. Like the more that we take on, we can't possibly know. We can't possibly put the time and energy into figuring out, okay, if I'm gonna say abolish the police, what does that mean? How do we replace them? Who has, what has to happen? What chain of events have to happen for the police to be abolished? Like all those things that takes time and energy beyond just caring about something. I care about a lot of things, but I'm, as I get older, I'm getting better at this. Like, and honestly, about my platform is really, let's give it name is not about the environment. It's not about the, the for-profit prison system. It's not about our criminal legal system. It's not about homelessness. It's not about one thing. It's about me helping people get to that moment where they realize this is what I care about. So I, over the last couple of years, as I've begun to appreciate comedy and as I've taken a little, like a few chill pills along the way, I have also had to pull back even the things that I really care about, the ones that I do know about, the issues that I do have knowledge of about how we fix these things. I've had to intentionally pull back little by little the amount of times I talk about it publicly. Why? Because again, I still only have a, a certain amount of energy and I want my energy to have a certain breath to it, not one issue. I'm not trying to fix the environment. I'm trying to help people figure out if they should fix the environment. I personally am not trying to abolish the police. I'm trying to figure out who's going to go into the criminal legal system and become lawyers and become this and become that, that will lead and politicians that will lead to that. So that's an interesting season I'm in where I'm like, I actually don't have one big issue that I'm focused on. My big issue is helping everybody figure out what their big issue is. I love that. Let's divide and conquer, dude. Yeah. Like, And then let's say you do do an environmental one and there is a 21-year-old that just left school trying to figure it out and they just get invigorated by your conversation, then they they are seeing art. Like I remember the film Beasts of the Southern Wilds. I was like, if someone was not an environmentalist, like that was a call to champion the environment. And like, 
I think the most that we can do is like, I don't know. I don't, well, actually that's confusing too. Cause I was going to say like vote in a way that honors the conviction we felt, but then also not decide that that means we have to be an absolute expert or speak on everything. Like I try my best with due diligence to vote in a way that honors human rights, like above yeah. all else. But, you know, political systems are extremely confusing too, like, and, and convoluted and not everyone is doing what they promise. Um, a friend of mine the other day, like in the heat of this, like I'm going through a lot of stuff online right now. And one person was like, you can't be in the center which was an interesting thing for someone to say to a person whose platform is called in the gray. I'm like, I literally, <laughs> I'm trying to be in the center. <laughs> like, that is literally Bring what balance. I do. Yeah. But even with that, I understood the implication was it's kind of like this fear that if your ideology goes too far away from like left, then suddenly you're dipping your toe in and you're like, and Joe Rogan's cool. And like, Oh, Jordan's interesting too. And, is Candace Owens crazy? Like the slippery slope fallacy. And it's like, so I'm not doing the slippery slope fallacy by engaging with a friend who has different views than me, even if I think they're problematic views. Like think about humanity and like don't dehumanize people because they're online. If you're sitting at a table and one of your friends is like drunk and is like, well, the earth could be flat. Like <laughs> them saying that versus tweeting it like they could tweet up the like or they could wake up the next day after tweeting that and have their lives like practically demolished whereas the dinner conversation would likely lead especially if you're true friends in relationship with each other to have some wonderful person lean in and be like what the fuck did you just say yeah. and then have a conversation but also like I don't know. And people saying you can't be friends with people or you can't associate with them, even online, like check her follows, see that she follows this person. It's like, dude, we are all individuals. And yeah, I will be That's friends with point. problematic people because how the fuck else are they going to move out of problematic ideas if every time they express one, they get relentlessly attacked online? That just pushes them deeper into shame. And I've seen people who were liberal straight up cross all the way yep. to more extreme right thoughts because it looks so nice and cozy over there in some ways because they're not eating their own the way we are, oh, at least yeah. not in my observation, but I'm not going over there. I'm committed to the gray. I think the, there's a, there's two different kinds of in the gray. There's two different kinds of centering ourselves. There's two different kinds of, of having problematic people in our lives. There is the kind of, there, is, there are strong opinions, strongly held, strong opinions, loosely held. I think there's time for both of those. Yeah. Most of the time we should have strong opinions loosely held in that we should be teachable and humble. As we stay in the gray, as we, as we, as we try to bring people from all kinds of backgrounds and beliefs together to hash out these enormous issues, I think we should enter that space. We should live in, We should live most of our lives in that space with strong conviction that we're not moving from where we are. I'm as left as they come. I have very conservative, level-headed friends. They're not even that problematic. They're problematic in that I think, you know, you don't believe it's probably, I shouldn't say that. I think it is problematic if you, even out of the goodness of your heart and love of your heart, think that gay people shouldn't be able to marry, right? Or that God hates that. 
And then you vote accordingly and cause real harm. Yeah. yeah. So that is problematic. But I'm not, but I think they're, I have a lot of people that they're not doing it because they're assholes. They're not doing it because they hate these people. They're doing it because they, they genuinely believe God told them to. Yeah. And so I think that being in the center, if we if we're weak, if we don't know why we believe what we believe, yeah, you will see people from the left go over to the right. Mm. But mm-hmm. if you enter that space with a certain amount of strong opinions strongly held, like I'm not wavering from this, human rights, I'm not wavering from the fact that trans rights are human rights yeah. and LGBTQ 100%. rights are human rights and homelessness should be eradicated and this, that, and the other. It's very obvious, just like obvious statements. If we're really sure of those things and we know why we're, we've come to that conclusion, I think living in that, in the gray, in the center is amazing because the only way to get the job done is to link arms with some problematic people and say, you've got some stuff that I don't have. I've got a bunch you don't have. And I think we need each other to get X, Y, and Z done. Yes. And the quote that I wrote down for myself and I show in the outro of my new videos for In the Gray is by Rumi, the Sufi philosopher. Beautiful. If you're not familiar, please read everything that he's written. Gorgeous. Um, And he said, out out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. And Yes. Gorgeous. That's powerful. And the thing that is like my motto for this season of my channel. And to me, that is the thing. Like when we get into these binaries of conservative people are assholes because they don't care about human rights and they just wish all trans people would die versus understanding they have these ideologies that are toxic, that they have been fed a lot of them since they were children. Like a brand new crop of children is being fed transphobia in the name of honoring God and divinity. And they do think they're doing right. Um, So as soon as you recognize that, you have to then meet in this field that Rumi describes and be like, hey, can we at least get on the same page that... um, Statistically, we can look and we can believe this fact right here that statistically trans people die in way greater numbers by murder and trans sex workers get it, like whatever, like yep. look at the the things at hand and be like, you don't have to morally believe it's okay to be trans, but if we can come to the center, to this gray area, this open field and say, all right, let's align on not dehumanizing this subject and really looking at what it is now Now you can argue and be like, this policy would work better for human rights. No, this policy would work better for human rights. I would rather have that argument than each side vilifying each other and be like, the left is out to destroy our children and our humanity because they want to take away our religion. The right is out to, you know, destroy all goodness and has no uh, human empathy or compassion. That is not fucking true. To your point, when you meet people that are completely opposite of you, you have so much commonality. You fall in love. You cry. You were raised in certain like toxic ideas. You suffer trauma. There is a human experience that you are sharing. So... And really, until we move these conversations politically and in these atmospheres from your evil, know your evil to like, here's a trans person, let's protect them because you say you're Christian, y'all on the right, don't you? 
That means you're devoted to protecting human rights, right? Because human rights mean that people are less likely to kill themselves or be murdered, etc. That's why, right, Christians? And then that was always my mission with God is Gray, my original first season of my project, because I wanted to illuminate and show Christians their wrong thinking is not just in the, the way that they are misinterpreting the Bible, um, because the word homosexuality wasn't there until 1946. Yep. Um, a whole other conversation. Like until I can show them that and then show them like, look, this belief is literally killing people. And I know you're better than that because I actually do. I know you are compelled by caring about human life. You care so much about human life that you're worried people are going to go to hell. <laughs> you know, like you care. So let's figure out how to protect these people. And then let's argue on the best way to do that. How beautiful would that be? It'd be amazing. Right? I think you're, I, I think you're spot on. In this season of life, I, five, six years ago, I tried to leave my Christian faith because I was sick and tired of everything I was seeing. Why? Um, Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> five, six years ago. What the fuck happened five to six years ago? I should build a YouTube channel upon that. Um, yes, you should. Um, and I should start an organization <laughs> that later that year to help people uh, give a damn because of that. Yes. But honestly, I was actively trying to leave the faith. Why? Because I saw a certain someone come down an escalator, um, call my, my neighbors, my people, I'm Guatemalan, but my people, rapists and murderers, and say this and say that and get the support of the people that say, get the people that support the guy who said there's two commands. It all comes down to this, love God and love your neighbor. Who was also brown. Who was also brown. And then you somehow, through all of your weaving and you know your comings and goings, you settled on this guy as your savior, your physical representation of a savior. <laughs> Try to leave it all. And, 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 I, and I really hated Christians. Um, I'm still recovering from that, honestly, because I was like, I hate, I don't hate you, but I hate that you went for this. I, I hate that you went for him. I hate that some of you voted for him again two years ago. People that I love, people that I cherish, people that I see multiple times a year. Hi, dad. <laughs> that first time you couldn't have literally, you could have slid a suitcase, a briefcase full of cash across the table. Just vote for Trump and this is all yours. I would have thrown the cash back in your face. You are so principled. I don't need money. Give me the cash. <laughs> Give me the cash. Um, Just kidding, being, everybody. Yes. Point being, in the subsequent years, as I talked with more conservatives, even conservatives that are conservative and didn't vote for Trump, conservatives that are conservative and love Jesus and did vote for Trump. As I started making the rounds and having the conversations and chilling out and like approaching those conversations with a better attitude, with a better mindset, I realized these people are good. Mm. These are good people. Mm. These are good people that have been fed many, many lies about the God they serve. Yes. They have been fed many, many lies about how, how the ways the world works. They have been fed many, many lies about um, why they're this, suffering, why they're suffering <laughs> mm -hmm. and what they do if they don't live perfectly on this earth. They have been fed many, many lies about many, many things, but they are good people. Mm -hmm. And when they, I believe so, again, I think it's wrong. I think they're wrong. If you're doing this, hear me, I think you're wrong. But when people stand outside of an abortion clinic 
and try to convince some woman they know nothing about. They don't know this person at all. They don't know if they've been raped by their father or cannot have a child because if the child comes, it will starve to death. They don't know the situation at all. And yet they're standing there saying, like, I believe that the root of that is not hatred for that person or what they're about to do. I believe it's, they really think they're doing the right thing. This is the right thing. We need to save this life. Righteousness can morph into hatred. But it can, right? And, yeah. I, and so many of them, I think it, they don't even realize that how, like what the, the fallout of what they're doing is. So again, it's like this whole thing of, yeah, I want to work with you. I deeply disagree with so many of the ways that you're living out, the way you treat trans people <clears throat> and gay kids and uh, women just trying to survive and making choices out of that survival mode or just not the right, whatever. You don't know this person. Like it just, um, I want to, in the past two years, cause it took me three years to get there during this era that we're in past two years, I've been able to live more healthily and breathe better and have a clearer mind because I'm like, okay, I hated you guys three years ago. And now I'm like, you're pretty good people. We got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. We need to have some conversations, mm-hmm. but I don't hate you. Like, let's work together. Let's work. To, can we all agree that Marjorie Taylor Greene is bad for the country? Seriously. Can we all agree that there are better people than Ron DeSantis out there? Can we all agree that this, you know, we shouldn't be giving a platform to, uh, uh, you know, people like Candace? Like, can we all agree? Like, can we all agree that like children are dying in schools because we won't just like come together on gun legislation? Yes. If you right. see These human are, death yeah. and suffering, can we all go down that rabbit trail together and then find the root and realize it has nothing to do with your, like the lies. But yeah, if you recognize human suffering, we as a people, as a collective, regardless of which camp you claim to be in, like there is human suffering. Is it, can it be recognized? And then come, can we come together from there? I'm going to lower this shade because. Okay. Oh, yeah, maybe. Sun's about to be in your eyes. Can I grab another one of these guys? You may. Yep. Do you want one? I am good right now. If I drink more, I will pee and rub it. Okay. We'll keep this. Um... So we dove right into a bunch of stuff, but many people listening might not know who you are, where you've come How from. How dare you? I know, right? <laughs> I mean, they'll want to know who you are after this, this uh, conversation. But, oh, let me say this too, before we even get into, I'm going to put your book up so anybody watching this versus listening to it can see the cover. There she is. Um, it's a great memoir. Because it's a memoir, I want you to, in a minute, go through it. Not read it. Read it from cover to cover. Read it from cover to cover. This will be a seven-hour podcast. <laughs> but take us through the story. There's a reason. I love memoirs for a lot of reasons. I'm going to write one someday. Um, but I think it's important to like chronologically almost as much as we can. Like I want to hear the journey. Because even this this new iteration, which we'll get to soon, between like from God is gray to in the gray – that's a super important transformation that's happening. Why? Why? If people don't know your story, though, they'll be like, it won't be as meaningful. But before we get there, many people that I love and care about have read that book. Mm. And it's really, 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 really helped them. Yeah. Really. Oh. 
That makes me um, so happy. Including my wife, who read the book and figured out things about herself, sexually, spiritually. She saw a lot. You're of, welcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they 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 were very excited that we were going to get to talk because, um, in the other one, well, just I'm thinking of two right now. I know many people who have read the book, and it's it's rave reviews from everybody. But my wife and then my sister-in-law, um, who both read it and were deeply, deeply helped. So I know that you are going through an almost physical shitstorm right now in your life. <laughs> but take solace in the fact that things you put out there are helping people. Thank um, you. So I know I could say that at the end. But as I lift the book up for people to see and as we get into your story... Um, I want you to know that it, 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 it means something that you decided to write it out. You're doing the videos. You've been doing the videos for years, but like the book form is, um, it's different. I love, I'm a big, our family, it's all, we read all the time. We love reading and reading. I love watching movies, love going to Broadway shows, love listening to music, but books, the written word, whether it's a memoir or a historical take on something or nonfiction or whatever it is, like it hits differently. And so for you to put it, put it out in this form um, is deeply helpful to a lot of people who do learn better from books than they do from a YouTube video or whatever. So there you have it. Thank you. I'm so, so glad to hear it. That was the entire intention of everything. I was thinking about how my original like inspiration or fantasy was that closeted gay boys or, you know, kind of quote slutty girls would have it hidden under their beds because I wanted it to be salacious, but not for like, not, that wasn't the intention to be titillating in any way, but just to really push people's understanding of their sexuality and how it was presented the, to them in like American Christianity. And this of course speaks like specifically to primarily white evangelical Christianity, which is also interesting because I began writing this book long before Trump and so many people in the non-religious, uh, secular atheist, whatever, didn't understand the content or why sex was such a, a heavy, convoluted, confusing, all of it. Um, so I really wanted to lay this out for the people who have been through it, who are currently stuck in it, who are trying to survive through it. Um, and then also for the voyeur that's like, why did all these people vote for Trump? Why are people drinking the Kool-Aid of transphobia when they say they follow a loving Christ? And I really hope that this book serves both purposes because it's insight into um, I'd say, I don't know the math. I want a 13, 12 year journey of this. Yeah. And, um, so the most abridged version is that I was raised, I was casual Catholic growing up. Parents are super chill, but it was a sex silent household. So, you know, we didn't know anything about anything. My sexuality was developing just whatever without thought masturbating since I was five, very common for girls. And, um, Boys start later, so usually around eight. Yeah. <laughs> FYI, everybody. Um, but anyway, it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I say my sexuality, which was burgeoning and about to wake up, was 
hijacked by the evangelical Christian church mm. in this theology called this wrongful theology called purity culture, which in very, very short terms requires that you maintain that you have no penetrative PIV sex until you are in a heterosexual married union with someone. So the weight of pressure to stifle hormones or to believe that your hormones are actually demons or Satan trying to drag you to hell versus teaching children comprehensive sex ed from five and realizing that all of these impulses are as normal as a hunger ping when you're ready to eat, it can cause a lot of what we're now recognizing is religious trauma that language has been attributed to it to really empower people when they're talking to therapists or when they're telling their story to be like, Oh, I think that's what I went for like Mm. through, Mm. which is basically your spiritual life, which is a component that a lot of people have becomes hijacked by a theological system that actually causes you deep harm pain or like complete wrongful thinking about things as simple as your body and its function and its desire. I too grew up in a sex silent home, deeply evangelical. You know, it's funny you brought up ages five for girls and ages age eight for boys, typically for when they start masturbating. Um, you'd, you'd probably be surprised to know that the first time I masturbated was 16 years old. That's also normal. Normal. Well, normal is a bad word too. Right. But <laughs> but common. It's common, but it's common for whom? People that live in sex silent homes where it's a combination of it's not it's not just we don't talk about it. Then there's the active uh don't explore. There's the active if you do engage in something like that. Like the reason I in so many ways did not even explore that or act on bodily urges that were happening, which is usually how it happens. You know, you're like, you're messing around and you're like, what's going on and boom. Well, I didn't even do that because why would I do that under the threat of eternal damnation? (laughs) If I masturbate- Just a light threat. Just a light threat of (laughs) if you jerk off, then you might go to hell. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that at the time at 16, I thought that was normal. And that was honestly, there was, there were already several years of looking at porn before that. So for several years, looking at porn before actually masturbating self-control, so self-control or just dumb, like didn't know what the, mm. didn't know. Well, cause at, at that point there was so much hush hush and so much sex silent and so much everything that there was nobody talking about the fact that there's something in between not having sex and having penetrative sex, and <laughs> yeah. that is taking care of yourself. There's not not a peep, nobody. And I was a missionary kid growing up in Guatemala, uh. so I had friends, but like they weren't talking about it. I was still getting used to the culture there, so they're not offering sex advice uh, to me. And it was a very restrictive, hard home to talk about things, explore things. Uh, So it's just interesting. I wanted to point that out before we move on that like, yes, that is normal. These are the normal ages. And I was um, 
and again, normal is interesting because we're all different. We're all unique. Some of us are going to figure out things at all different ages, right? I know. I but, can already hear people accusing me. She used the word normal. No. Another mistake. I know we're not supposed to say that. No, but I, I think and most, I, and people, most people will be generous and say that's just the, those are the ages where it begins to happen. Yeah. And then there was me at 16, even after looking at pornography, just literally, I had a friend once who was like, you just looked at it? Like you just, you just looked like... And I was like, yeah, I get, I guess so. I, I was, as a young boy, was just enjoying what I saw. Didn't know what else to do with it because I wasn't going to go have sex afterward. There was nobody to do that with. Wow. So it's just interesting how I think restrained the household was and how hush-hush it was to the point where Nick didn't even know. Nick was traveling the world. Nick was part of this like brave family, you know, take my parents took us to go like all, but it was so restrictive when it came to things of religion and not doing the things that would ultimately send us to eternal damnation that didn't even know what it was. And the first time that it happened, I'm giving so much information. It doesn't matter. This is who I am. <laughs> it happened accidentally. Mm. So at 16, there was some sort of like messing around and like, what's happening? It happened. What was that? I did not know what happened, even at 16. I didn't know what just happened. Wow. And then it was, I, I talked to somebody. It was like, felt really great. What happened? Because I still didn't know what happened. Oh my God. So that's just how I wanted to give you a peek into, yeah, the unhealth, the real unhealth. My children at ages seven, nine, and 10 already know more about all things sex than I knew at the age of six ages of 16 and 17. God bless. Good. That's how it's supposed to be. I know. Brenda. I know. That's how it's supposed to be is us coming alongside our children and saying, here's what the world's like. Here's what your body's like. This is what happens when people love each other. And here's what to look out for. Um, there have been days, like, like there have been days that my, you know, things have happened at school, you know, bullying or whatever. And we're working through these things right now in our school with our oldest daughter. But like, there's been moments where like, there's been days where my two girls feel off, bad mood, could be anything. And I will, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but I want to be like super honest with them. I'll walk up to them and be like, did anything happen to you that you need to talk to me about? Yeah. Did anybody touch you that where you, you know, in ways that you did not like, did not get the permission to. And because I'm just like, I want to look for those signs, signs that were completely ignored in our household. Um, and on top of that, I'll let you get back to talking. This is our, my yeah, podcast. So with you. Bored. But, <laughs> but when, um, in our household, mm. so there was this like deep fear. And then when, when we would get caught, you know, looking at porn or doing different things or even not even porn, just like, just like very mild stuff, like PG-13 stuff in a very conservative missionary home. Um, and I say this all the time, th that my childhood was very rough, very abusive father. I always caveat that and add on that my dad is amazing and that he's amazing now. Mm. He's a totally different person the last 12, 15 years. I didn't get to experience that in the home when I lived home, but my younger siblings are super blessed. <laughs> and he's different now and he's mm. amazing and he's totally changed and he's wonderful. And he's a prime example of you can change. Stop talking about you can't change. Yes. Stop talking about you're 40 or 50 and you can't change. Yes. You can change. Amen. 
But I also don't shy away from talking how shitty it was growing up. When, when things did happen, ooh, you got caught. My dad had this like software on the computer that would like tell him what websites we went to. Oh, no. And oh, it was a shame fest. It was like full family meeting. <gasps> Girls, boys, everybody. No, no, I'm not talking private. I'm saying um, everybody, he would print out this printout of like the websites that we went to and he would read them off. Such and such.com, such and such.com. Oh They'd my like God. Read I'm them sorry. out and be like, who did this? <gasps> who was it? It must have been kind of funny, the websites though. Oh, probably back then. Like, <laughs> like who, if you who, could who laugh at knows? it now from a bird's oh, eye view. I, <laughs> I do laugh at it now. Big titties bouncing.com. Who was that? Who was that? Backslash. And everybody's, and everybody's like, <laughs> what? Like all these little kids around? Whatever. I'm grateful for my story. I don't regret anything I went through. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Yeah, it's terrible. It made me who I am today. But I wanted to commiserate with you that that it was very similar in that like, just didn't know, had no idea till I was almost an adult what the world's like in in the sex realm. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know. And you are not alone. And like, no, everyone's story is unique and amazing and worth telling but um we share a lot of commonality when you're in this like system and people outside of religion have a lot of the same issues because there is no comprehensive sex ed in this country except aside from a handful of states one of my mega dreams is to be a part of legislation comprehensive sex ed just around our whole country because this goes back to what we were talking before about this division of right-leaning people just being like, they're evil. They're trying to taint our children. There's all these smear campaigns of like comprehensive sex ed. Like they're, they want to teach our kids porn at five. They're going to be showing your kids porn at 13. They're going to teach anal sex at five. And we need to stop, like we need to learn how to stop listening to these extremist voices on either side because as tantalizing as it is and as like reactive our whole bodies will be when we hear something that is based in fear or shame or, you know, whatever, that's, these are the voices that prevail in these conversations because they have such a strong emotional reaction from people. And then their narrative ends up being true, quote unquote, for like every news station on one side or the other. And it's really, truly heartbreaking because I am a um, sex educator. I like, and (laughs) I'm like trying to remember the word. I'm a certified sex educator. Hell yeah. And um, I could use way more education, frankly. But one thing I thought was invaluable when I was learning about being an educator was that like just giving parents the notion that you will protect your child from so much if you would just inform them about their body, about consent, about autonomy, all of it. Because the statistics of children being, you know, trigger warding, molested or assaulted or what have you, it's not that you can ever avoid or fully protect your children from those situations, right. but knowing that you, since five years old, will have empowered them with the language. They know the real names of the body parts. They know that no one's supposed to hurt them. They know their body is their own. They're allowed to intuit if something is good or bad. Like 
giving even kids permission to intuit things. And then when they're 16 and your daughter is being harassed by a boy who's like, no, I don't want to wear a condom. Don't make me wear a condom. She will also have the language and the statistics and the information to be like, no, I'm here to protect my body for X, Y, Z reasons. And I know I can get pregnant this way. Like, it's about protecting your children, not harming your children, not introducing them to concepts they're not ready to hear. And frankly, if you look at the stats, your children may be introduced to these things way earlier than you want anyway. So you might as well be their trusted source. Like porn by eight years old is the statistic now. Like, yeah. like that almost every child will see porn by eight years old. And that's wild. And it's wild because by the time, yes. So parents... Okay, let me caveat. I have, I have two things I want to say before we go on. The two things are, number one, I used to hesitate about having conversations that were very heavily Christian. It's obviously going to happen because I'm, I am a Christian still. But I used to shy away from it or get very uneasy about it. I stopped doing that because everyone watching, Christian or not, religious or not, knows what we're talking about. Like everybody knows about it, whether they know a Christian they are a Christian, they were a Christian, they wanna be a Christian, they hate Christians. We Anywhere in the Western world, which is where most of these listeners are, Christianity is everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's on every street corner. They've seen the public you know, displays of horrific transphobia and racism. They've seen the downfall of leaders. It's, it's so public, right? So I stopped doing that. So I, I wanna just remind people, this, this conversation is for you. If you're listening, it's for you, regardless of where you are, because you are being touched by Christianity in some way, shape, or form. Number two is something you just said a couple minutes ago, which is this is not just, you know, you're talking from a Christian perspective if you're growing up. I'm talking from a Christian perspective growing up. But this also applies to, because of our lack of comprehensive sex ed, this is for everybody. Yes. This is for everybody. Yeah. Because Christian or not, they don't have the education. They're not doing it because they believe God's going to send them to hell. They're doing it because they don't know what the hell else to do. They're not telling their kids about it. They're not warning their kids, informing their kids, just because they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. Nothing about hellfire and brimstone for them. They're just not doing it because, what, we're supposed to do that? I didn't find out until I was this. I didn't find out until I remembered three years ago that I was molested by my teacher. Uh, yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like that's even for people that aren't Christians. So yeah. this is a, this is a truly, there's going to be a lot of Christian-y stuff brought up, but this is for everybody, yeah. parents and non-parents alike. We're all working through these issues. We all know children that we can help protect, uh, whether they're our own or our best friends have kids or our the neighbors, like we're all on, we should be all on high alert about this. And taking care of that inner child we've all got in us too, because like, so many people have suffered sexual trauma due to a lack of information. Like when Me Too occurred, me, I'm not exaggerating when I say all. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a couple of people I didn't talk to, but any friend that I spoke to in the Me Too movement was having revelations about being raped that they'd never had before. And I had the same thing. I was like, oh, I was raped. Like, twice, I guess, or at least like once and a half or, you know, and then you're starting reckoning with like, what is the definition? And what we didn't realize is like growing up in the eighties for my generation, we all grew up in stranger danger. So yep. rape to me was like getting knocked over the head in a dark alley. And I remember Oprah was the one, she's my, everyone's queen. 
Um, she was the one that was pushing that and started saying things like, did you know you could get raped on a date? Yeah. And you, know you can get raped by your partner, the person that you agreed, put a ring on their finger and said, till that do us part. I know. Well, that's yeah. even like a later conversation. Yeah, right, right. I just remember at some point, maybe when I was in high school or in my twenties or something, hearing Oprah also, no, I guess it was high school after school specials being like, you could go on a date and get raped. Yeah. And that was like mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. And then marital rape wasn't outlawed in the United States until 1996. So that is also a Insane. new conversation for a lot of people. And then if you grow up in cultures that you believe you need to be subservient to men, and that is many different religions that are in toxicity and misogyny and patriarchal, whatever, um, then you also have been presented this idea that it's your duty to please. Yep. So that like all of it leads to potential trauma and also our newfound knowledge for many of us about the fight flight fawn response. Like when I was raped, I didn't recognize it as that because I froze and I was always taught say no. So I was like, well, I didn't say no. And it wasn't until a year ago or less that I got this amazing pelvic floor therapist, Amy Moses, anyone who wants to work on their pelvic floor health. Holy moly. This woman's incredible. Um, but it was the very first time I ever cried about getting raped. And the reason is because uh, like she processes things with your body and, and this is over zoom. This woman's incredible. Mm -hmm. And I'm like laying on my floor and she's asking me to intuit where certain pains are because your body is this like beautiful beast of information. The body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. An amazing book as well. So, you know, she's like recognizing trauma, a lot of which is in my like pelvic floor area and I'm having these issues. And as I'm like working through it verbally with her, suddenly I burst into tears and she was like, and I'm explaining it. And I was like, I didn't say no. I laid there and she was like, Brenda, you said no in a hundred ways that were absolutely visible to that man. And if he wants to say that because he didn't hear a verbal no, that he knows that he didn't do that, like that's she didn't say bullshit, but essentially because she was like, your body says no, your eyes plead. No, your frozen nature says, I don't want to be here. And that just brought me to tears because, you know, recognizing all of these things, like all the people in our lives who've tried for so long to evolve these conversations to protect the next generation. Unfortunately, as new traumas emerge, you recognize like, oh, we tried to teach our daughters about stranger danger. Then they didn't recognize rapes when it happened to them. And we taught them to say no and not an enthusiastic yes. So they didn't recognize that either. And like, it's so unfortunate, but this is the journey we're on. And it would be beautiful if we could start everyone on that journey at five. And also it should be up to the schools because parents don't have consent and autonomy informed education. They're not professional sex educators. So every parent can try their best and go for resources. And I certainly hope you all do because it's such a fundamental piece of life, even for the asexual or even at times, especially for, you know, the asexual, anyone on the scale. So like, I don't know. It, it puts so much weight on people who don't have the tools to do it themselves. And then we wonder why everyone's still flailing. Yeah. So Texas will just criminalize abortion in lieu of simply educating women on how to not get pregnant. It's devastating. So much to say there. Um, 
let's move on and I'll keep, I'll keep, I'll keep chiming <laughs> in. There's so much. I do want to, I'll say Are you feeling this. rage right now? I'm, I'm feeling a lot of things. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling introspective in my own life. You're like I, hugging your body. Because I was just about to make a statement. The statement was, the statement was, because I've said this before off, never on microphone, but I've said before in, in the context of this conversation, what we're talking about, that every, every or virtually every, um, well, I was going to say even just like evangelical man, but any man that was born in the eighties, that, you know, straight man that got married to a woman that is, is now 10 years into their marriage, right? Around that time. Like, have any of us not raped our wives? I am so grateful to hear you say that. Every woman I know has, or almost every woman I know has been raped and I don't know any rapists. No one talks about the rapists. And men need to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about my, because when I, I married Rebecca, during a time when I was deep, like all my, all my, everything, my job, my career, everything I, everything I thought about, talked about, wrote about, sang about was, yeah, in a very patriarchal, um, maybe you're chosen, maybe you're not. If you're not, you're going to hell. You can't do anything to change it. If you're chosen, thank God that you're one of the lucky ones and um, very male dominated. Women can't preach. Women can't lead. They are there as to cook and clean and uh, have sex with you. Um, so I, I, I think it could be fair. And I don't even know how to process that. <laughs> like, mm. like, but, it, but again, even outside, because there's no comprehensive uh, uh, sex ed, anyone born in my era that has been now been married for a while, and sure, we've evolved and we've come along, and I'm a long way from where I was 10 years ago. 14 years ago when we got married. But I don't know that I can't say that at some point. Like you said, when your your therapist was like, you told him no in a hundred different ways. I know mm. there are times when I wanted sex, she wasn't in the mood, and I somehow, never like forcefully, I've never held my wife down. I've never said, take it, you're gonna take it. Well, Christian men weaponize Bible verses for that. Or, yeah, and yes, 100%, 100%, Ephesians which is horrible. Ephesians 522. Which is horrible. But we can also be very nice about it. We can also just, you know, very kindly say, but I need it. But I need it. And inside her, she's like, I don't, I don't want this at all. Mm. But we push and push and push. That's the lightest form of rape. But if rape is non-consexual <laughs> sex, I don't want it. You make me have it whether it's through physical means or mental manipulation means, that's a heavy thing to think about. Because I would never, I don't think I'd call myself a rapist today, but again, a rapist in the in the way that like we think about out there, like behind bars, you can't stop from taking from women that which is not yours. I'm talking about my wife. Hmm. Thank you. I mean, damn. I look forward to hearing more men have conversations like that. And I'm honored that like just to sit here with you and hear you process through that. And I think something we all need to recognize 
are a couple things. One is that I actually really don't believe the statistic that women are raped more often than men. Like I, I'm imagining that it's almost dead even because mm. like, mm. you know, there's too much childhood trauma. There's too much shame. And, um, stigma around men actually speaking out. Yeah. I've had a lot more conversations with male friends who say that they've been on dates and women have been like, um, you what, you don't think I'm pretty? Why aren't you getting hard for me? Like manipulation. And then they're not like wanting to be there either. And so I just want to first recognize that it happens to all of us. This is just not a problem of men. Sure. Women have also been socially conditioned to go running straight past consent of men because we were told men always want sex. They always want to fuck. If they get to have sex with you, they're just so lucky they got, so got that. And that is not true. Like I, I forget who it was. Someone on Dan Savage's podcast um, did this extensive exhaustive study of like male and female and gender non-conforming and non-binary people's sexuality. And her discovery was that everyone was exactly the same. Everyone spelt, fell on a spectrum of sexual desire or lack thereof or attraction or whatever. Like men sometimes don't want sex or maybe never want whatever. And we were told differently. So like I have reckoned with a moment where I was like, I, I remembered having done that once and I didn't end up having sex with this person because mm. I did end up taking a cue. But like I realized that I was running on this narrative of like, you want this, I'm offering it to you. Why aren't you taking it up? And <laughs> looking back, this guy was talking about his ex-girlfriend and how he's really heartbroken. And I was like forcing myself on him with this false narrative I was given. So there's like complicity in these systems among a lot of us and facing those realities is really crucial so it can move forward and inform our children. And then also this goes for everyone, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Um, but I specifically recognized it in the Christian space for the first time, which is that I was given this idea that my flesh is evil, my heart is deceitful, yeah. and therefore I cannot trust my body. And a huge part of my journey out of that thinking and the healing of my sexuality, and I always say I swung from purity culture, which is like no penetrative MF sex until you're married, all the way to hookup culture, which is like... I have absolutely no regard for whose body I'm using and for what reason. Like I am just trampaging is what I called it. And I Not really was. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm sure hurting many people along the way, breaking hearts, not being communicative, whatever. Um, and then my whole work for my inner, my being has been to center out in the middle and like you fuck up and go one way or the other sometimes, but like the center of that. And at the center lies this concept of sexual integrity. You're practicing embodiment. So you're intuiting your body and your true desires and you're listening to those messages. Like you could even get in a sexual position with someone that you're having consenting sex with. And it's a position that your abuser had you in. And if you just grin and bear it and like disembody for a second, then your body is still receiving that trauma. And that is something I didn't realize. And that's, again, not to say it's your fault, but like embodiment says in partnered sex that that consent is always 
always at play and you're consenting to having sex, but maybe you don't consent to doing it in doggy style or whatever. And you both have to be doing that dance with each other and paying attention to each other's bodies. And that is really where like the work comes in of getting to know each other again as sexual beings and recognizing and realizing how to play together in sexuality without harming each other which can be so deeply damaging to both the person harming and the person receiving the harm. You talked about this pendulum swing that happened from purity culture to hookup culture going on a tramp page. Talk about that season of your life and what, was there one thing that happened that made you realize this is not healthy? <laughs> Or was it just a progressive sort of like, I'm seeing a pattern here. I don't feel great. This is not good. Am I the am I part of the problem? Like, <laughs> or, or was it like one moment where it just like hits you right in the face and you're like, my God, I'm becoming the worst version of myself and I'm becoming the thing that I hated just on the other side? Yeah. I just wanted to mention that I did look amazing. I had like bleach blonde, disastrous hair and I was wearing the tiniest outfits. I look back at pictures and I'm like, oh <laughs> my God, dang, um, that's it. Um, I first, I felt like, I feel like a visceral like swing of this pendulum because it's tied up shoddily on one side or the other. Like if you're living in an extreme, you cannot maintain that forever because it's usually not based in like authentic embodied truth for mm. you. It's like being held up by what someone else is telling you to do um, or a false belief system that will fall if confronted by truth. So purity culture is so full of lies that I outline explicitly in my book on her knees that when my husband cheated on me or I found out that he had cheated on me that like all these shoddy strings and rope holding me to that concept broke yeah. the primary reason being that I was taught if you're a good girl and you save yourself for marriage then you'll live happily ever after and have a million orgasms and you know just call it a day and I wasn't having sex in my marriage. I theorized my husband might have had like a Madonna whore complex where as soon as we tied the knot, he actually almost never had sex with me. So that promise oh, wow. had already not come through. And then when I found out he cheated, I was like, so what was the point of all that? I was the best girl a girl could be. And God, why would you betray me like that? And of course, I still am a Christian and I I am very like, deeply committed to cultivating and maintaining a relationship with divinity and how I feel about that. But, and at that time, it's like, I don't hear a, a voice voice that's audible, but sometimes this voice just booms that feels outside of me, but also feels like internal conviction. And when I asked that, like, why would you do this to me, God? It was like this very obvious, who told you? that nothing bad would happen to you if you saved yourself for marriage. And I was like, oh, Pastor Scott, <laughs> not God. Damn not it, Pastor <laughs> Scott. Yeah, no, it's so true though. And so that's when that started breaking down. And I had been so horny for so long and like, I still am and I can have, I used to call it having sex like a dude, which I wouldn't be so binary about it now. But what I meant was like, I could have sex with somebody tonight and be like, see you never. And like, not in a callous way. I have way less sex now that I'm committed to integrity because <laughs> integrity is hard. It requires a lot of work. But 
at that time wasn't living with integrity. So I remember sitting with my roommate and being like, I'm not going to count, not going to count because society and church had both said church was like, if you hit two people, you're a whore. And society was like, let's cap it at four or five ladies, you know? So either way I was going to be restricted by an ideology or a belief that wasn't my own. So I was like, well, screw the whole thing. And that's when the pendulum went all the way to the other side, which is like agony and ecstasy had amazing situations and experiences, had forgettable ones, had traumatic ones. And it wasn't until I fell in love with a man. And then he repeated this pattern that unfortunately has been repeated in my life many times which was that he like cheated. He like abandoned me for another woman in my eyes and all this stuff. And I went and ran into the arms of one of his friends, which I recognized even in that moment was this desperate desire to maintain a connection to him. And I was so unhealthy and I was so abusive toward my body and never listening to her that I like just fell into this relationship with another person that was kind of swimming in the same sea of sadness and depression and lack of self-worth that I was like, you kind of meet equals in that place. It doesn't mean you deserve to be abused or anything, but it's like we met each other in the same place. We went to the same bars. We had the same attitudes about some things. So, um, I, Always had, again, these narratives from the 80s, like, oh, well, if he hits me, it's abuse. And it wasn't until the end of like three and a half years or something that one of my best friends, Emily, was like, just do me a favor, go online, Google emotional abuse checklist and let me know what you see. There were 42 points on there and I checked off 41. Oh my God. And then I was like, the last outstanding one was he like negatively impacts your life with your children or something, or he harms your children. And then I started crying. So I was like 42 because the truth was that he had abused me into having an abortion. Mm. So he clicked all 42 boxes. Holy shit. You have so much humiliation, so many, so much self blame you've lost or at least have friendships that are on a temporary hold because you are insufferable for a lot of people because you're really hurting yourself and they're watching it and hating the person you're with. It's so alienating. And then there's so much shame and humiliation. Like how could I get to a point where people, where someone could abuse me in 42 different ways and I don't even recognize it or I think I actually deserve it. And picking up the pieces from that level of um, just not believing you're worth anything is a journey that I thereafter had to go on. So both swings and then that broke my swing from hookup culture. And then I started centering out. And in that process, I read an incredible book by Linda K. Klein called Pure. And she has fiction or nonfiction. Um, It's nonfiction. She interviewed subjects over a 12 year period to figure out their um, what they'd suffered through purity culture. I never had language like purity culture. I had never seen anyone write down the experiences I had before. That was a really hard book to get through because I was so elated that I wasn't alone. And I was also (laughs) 
just so devastated to realize I wasn't alone and that so many other people were suffering under the same thing that I did. And at that time, it already started God is Gray and it already started speaking out, which was such an honor because I at least felt empowered because I'm like, okay, well, now I can share this information. I did an interview with her. It was beautiful. And um, one of the things she says in her book is that she walked into a room intentionally for the very first time and had embodied sex, which meant that she was like, God, get in here, be a part of this experience. Because even if you don't resonate with the idea of a God, all of these ways that we separate ourselves and disembody or dishonor ourselves Mm. are like disconjointed and then leave room for you not to be having embodied, holistic, healthy sex. So by saying that, you know, she was inviting her whole being, whatever that means to her, to be a part of that sexual experience. And I realized I had the same thing. I'd be like, God, you wait out here. I'll go in here, do this disgusting, vile, horrible thing that you hate, and then I'll come back out. I also realized that because I believed psychologically that I was leaving divinity out of the room because he would be so displeased and disgusted by me that when I was being just, it was like a, it was too violent of a situation with this guy that I did not know that well. And like, it could be kinky and fun if that's your thing. It wasn't for me, especially with a stranger, but instead of advocating for myself or simply saying like, no, like, like Megan the Stallion says, don't fuck me like that. Fuck me like this, which I love that line because like so many of us haven't felt like we can say that. Yeah. Um, and this guy would have honored it. Like he's still a friend of mine. Like it would have been fine. But instead I, I left my body. I had my first and only so far and hopefully only one disembodied experience, like or out of body experience. And I hovered over the situation and watched it and watched my body be abused because not because he was even an abuser, but because I left the room and wasn't there to protect myself because I believed I wasn't worthy of being protected. And that is really like some of the darkness that this Christian purity culture brought me into. There's a lot there. I'm so sorry so much of that happened to you. Um, I am not sorry that you have taken the pain and the the pendulum swing and all that and have turned it into something really helpful for a lot of people. So I'm sorry for all that happened, but I think this is a good example of, um, not to, I'm bringing more Christianese in here, Christian language, but uh, yeah, turning, getting beauty from ashes, mm. you know, all these things that happen, you could be bitter about them, you could hate men, you could you could do a lot of things with it, and instead, you're creating this space for so many people to have the conversations, to look at it differently, to open not just eyes, but also mouths and speak what you need. Too much, not enough. Here's what I would love to, I, I want to, I in a minute, I want to ask just very plainly, and some of it might be obvious at this point, but I want to ask very plainly why God is gray and what is God is gray, and then we'll get to in the gray. But before I do that, as, as we walk around and exist in society and culture today. How is all of the terrible, uninformed, bad sex that we're having, and not bad in that it might not feel good, but just bad in that we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how 
spiritual and deep this act is. We're giving it away to anybody. We're not speaking up to say, you know, too much, not enough. We're not speaking our needs. And there's a lot of hurt people out there that are having sex, not because they want to have sex, but out of pain and suffering that they cause through, because of abuse, because of molestation, because of rape, because of all these things. Um, or, or the opposite of that, people not having sex that they should be having because they're not healed, because they feel unworthy, because they feel like trash. Um, I guess I'm kind of already, I, I don't know why I went into that because I'm already kind of answering my question, but how are we seeing this manifested? Like all, all that we just talked about, all that you're talking about, people go buy the damn book because it's full of, you know, more of your journey. We didn't even get to hardly any of your journey from childhood to here and all the things you've been through. But yeah, from your perspective, what are the ramifications of not taking seriously the kinds of things you're talking about beyond sex ed? Like just even the things you're talking about, like full, fully functioning, fully consenting adults engaging in sex, but not really, not speaking the full truth, not talking about what's really at stake here. What are the ramifications in like daily life? Like what are there bigger effects than just what's happening in a bedroom? It's really interesting because us having grown up in Christianity, I'm thinking of all the things we were told that it would result in. Like if you have premarital sex, you'll destroy your future marriage. If you jerk off, your wife will be neglected or, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. There's always this like threat around whether or not you're doing sex right or perfectly well. And then I think in hookup culture or like mainstream society, that's a little or a lot less thoughtful about sexuality and doesn't have that like imperative to please God and therefore is sort of like, you know, at worst, just like, like you said, based in, in trauma or just not really knowing yourself. I think it would be fair to say like, it's okay. <laughs> it's all okay. If you are listening to a conversation like this and you're invested in content that is growing you and informing you and educating you like great that means you are already primed to receive some of these messages and start getting the healing that you need and deserve or having the conversations you've been formerly either afraid to have or didn't have the language to have you know there's so many resources now like and also with the narrative of I think so many men feel like discluded from the conversation or downright demonizing these conversations because y'all are the ones who are causing harm to a lot of women. Like when women talk about being afraid when a man is crossing them on the street, there's so much validity to it because of our lived experience as women. But at the same time, you know, there's plenty of men walking down the street that mean you no harm and like having that lens on everyone and making an enemy yeah. of everyone, even... I mean, it's really sticky territory. I was telling you before we started that I referred to Kanye West in a video about not giving outputting shame specifically online and like in vitriolic spaces and having more compassion when someone is going through a public mental health breakdown. Like, I really think we can be complicit in the further harm of that person or how they output that harm to their spouse and children because we don't realize, and I didn't realize until two weeks ago how, or four months ago, how deeply damaging 
like it can be when disembodied voices start coming for someone online. And so many celebrities have warned us about this, but um, it, it's still happening all the time. Britney, Kanye, whatever. So all of that said, I think there's a lot of contention over like, well, who do we have to feel sorry for? I don't feel like feeling sorry for someone that lives in a mansion. And I get it. I also know a lot of people who live in mansions who I actually wouldn't trade my life for theirs because right. uh, there's a lot of holes and gaps there that I wouldn't I wouldn't want. Like if you want to be jealous of someone, you have to take the entire package. You can't just be like, fuck you, you have a mansion. And it's like, oh, do you also want their trauma and their story and their absent father? Like you have to take all of it. Right. So are you jealous or not? You know? Yep. I had a beautiful mentor, Alami Ballard, tell me that. I love you, Ali, if you're listening. Yeah, it's great. But you're probably not. But um, but yeah, all of that said, like, I don't know. I want to invite those people who are out putting their harm. I think some of us intake harm and like me, like silently being raped or at least verbally silently being raped. And, um, and then there's the person exporting that harm, which is the person on top of me doing that to me. And it's not that he is not wrong. It's not that I condone anything that he did. I gravely worry for how many times he's done that to other people, but also until we like look at these situations and realize that these things are passed on mm. generationally, like mm. the Bible calls it a generational curse, mm-hmm. but <laughs> abuse is the the gift for lack of a better word that That never yeah keeps on giving and until we get to the root of that and like throw that gift in a giant pyre um and really help people start healing and recognizing you're not an evil person the guy that raped me is not an evil person he did that for a million reasons that i know nothing about and you know, there still should be justice and punish or not just not punishment, but like appropriate justice. Yeah. And even now, I'm sure you can hear me like swimming in these muddy worders. That, no, I get like, it. I don't know how, how to, I, I don't say know it. How to, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to talk about it. I agree with yeah. you. It's like this this very delicate balance of holding people accountable for true crimes and situations like that or and also being like, but, you know, like you're advocating as, quote, liberals for a justice system that is about true justice, which means reconciliation and healing and health and mental health and slashing people and making them, quote, evil and, and another binary of good and bad just doesn't it isn't going to solve the problem. And if you don't care about the abuser, worry about the child observing it that may repeat those patterns also so much there we can make this a 10 hour we can make this a joe rogan length podcast please no um i won't (laughs) i won't um talk about let's let's um as we begin to wrap up i want to hear about you've alluded to god is gray a ton and what you're doing and again if people are watching this they probably know about you know who you are but if not god is gray why god is gray it's kind of a weird like catchy uh like you want to know more about it but it's not super obvious right away why why you call it that um so god is gray what you've been able to accomplish through that platform and then however much you want to talk about this next season of life that is coming great yeah so god is gray was born because i had written on her knees and i couldn't find a publisher because they said we like the material but there's no audience for this which is interesting because again before trump and everything i don't think a lot of people 
in the world, as Christians would say, understood how many people would resonate with stories right. like these. Millions of people have been exposed to and perpetuated in some time and instances purity culture. So anyway, when I got those messages, I was like, look, I was thinking to myself, there might not be 50,000 people, but even if there's like 3,000 women that feel the same way I do, or gay kids that feel the same way, like, I just have to get this message out. I want to. And I was going online because I wanted to tell the publishers, no, I have proof. There's this place online that's sex positive Christians, and this is a gay affirming church. And instead, my research yielded very depressing results mm. where I found the same toxic theology that had caused so much damage in my life and ultimately culminated to me like abandoning my self-worth to such a degree that I was abused into an abortion, like the ultimate sin for a Christian supposedly. Um, I got angry because this one white girl was in clear affluence. I don't know how her bank account looked, but she looked like she's in a big house. I know she lives in San Diego. And it was like, should we use birth control as Christians? And she was essentially saying, I trust God with my fertility, which anyone so. would know and recognize that that is such an irresponsible thing to say. Yeah. And I bring up her affluence and, you know, her being white because there are so many lived experiences that she could have not ever imagined. And if she has anyone in her community who, you know, is a black mother of three, just making ends meet as a single mom and actually respects that girl and hears that message. And it's like, I trust God with my fertility. That can be really terrible. You yeah. can, you know, send someone into extreme poverty. That's yeah. that was a very or death or like so many things that could come up. Yeah, come if you're a black earth. woman, yeah. you could die because yeah. she told you that. Like, and obviously she's not aware. We're talking about this. These are good people, good-hearted, coming from a good place, but they are still, from my experience and knowing, <laughs> saying some really toxic stuff. So I stormed around my house enraged. And then I remembered I had this camera that I never used, picked it up, and I heard it right away, God is gray. And I fought with that title right away because I knew Christians would say, God isn't gray. He's black and white. Bible's very clear. <laughs> like, that's the script evangelicals are given. No room in, for gray. In that, in that voice tone as well. That's yeah, for exactly, some reason. God is gray. Not, <laughs> God is black and white. He's not gray. He told us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, there is a, a like a right-leaning political commentator who came on her podcast, and it was called, like, God isn't gray. And she literally was like, God isn't gray. You're confused. That's amazing. <laughs> I was like, I love it because I knew it. So I was like bracing myself. I have yeah. the entire evangelical script memorized right. a million times over. I knew exactly what they'd say. And I like braced myself for a tidal wave of Christian hate. And I have gotten that, but also it never phased me really because I was very compassionate towards that audience. And I still am like, I was them. So how much can I judge them? Like if anything, I'm just trying to slowly pull them out. So in video by video, I broke down why you should be a feminist, why it's not evil to be one, why you should be one for LGBTQ rights. And not only that, but why it's perfectly fine for a man to have sex with a man. And I would prove it, prove it, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but honestly, do a dive into theology, sometimes with my inch of knowledge, sometimes with a foot of knowledge. I'm not an expert on anything um, except my own experience, but... 
I would lay all of these out with my own experience, stories, theology, and just hope that I could pull them to the other side. Mm. And I am very, very happy for that whole thing because about two years into it, I got offered this book deal. So the thing I was trying to do in the first place happened. And then I built this beautiful community and people, you know, have said they felt suicidal ideation, which is a common thing. LGBTQ kids feel under purity cultures, wrath, and um, that they didn't feel that anyway, that anymore, that they came out and just a lot of positive results. And then finally, I had the abortion video and I had held that truth really, really close to my heart. Sure. And I did it intentionally. I have a bit of a sailor mouth. I am sarcastic. I like making jokes. But I didn't show fully that side of me, not to be deceptive, but because, again, I was completely aware of what would be palatable for evangelical Christians. And I wanted to talk to them. So I was like, I'm not going to put the obstacle of saying the word fuck in here because they'll shut off right away. They'll be like, heathen, bye. So I was very mindful of everything that I did and how I presented it. And, um, and I never told anyone that I had an abortion, though in many videos I fought super hard for pro-choice policy because I could not be more pro-choice after what I've gone through and, and learned and educated myself on. 100%. So, um, I saved it, saved it, saved it, went on podcasts, had debates with old white men about it, never said that I had experienced it. And then finally it was time and I felt it and I think I like cried because I was like, oh my God, Mm. the day has come because Mm. that's very personal. It was very traumatic. And I knew that, or I suspected that it would be, you know, murderous whore, all the language that people use, whatever. And, um, and it was so precious and, and devastating to me. I didn't want to hear, you know, it's just like, God, I'm going to subject myself to that. So I turned off comments to care for myself. And I'm very grateful I did. I'm like, there's literally nothing you could say to me that I I don't know, except maybe your own personal story. And then you can email me if it's really important to share that. I didn't want anyone exposed to a comment section that could get as vile as that one could. And, um, and I had a very clear instinct, intuition that God, I like referring to God as divinity now said the end the end. Like you've said everything you could say about this, the end. Not that I will not continue speaking about this forever because it's a part of my story, but it was like as an artist, that was a project and that was the completion. Unfortunately, money is a big Achilles heel. I'm a single mother and I was afraid to cap it at that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I kept producing content probably only for like a month and a half. I don't, I don't want to misrepresent myself, but it wasn't much longer. And I had this video that I was writing. Um, there's a mega pastor in Australia who had covered up allegedly mm-hmm. his father's sex crimes against children. And I was writing this angry um, outline about all the things I wanted to tell everyone that this man had done. And I was in my uh, in my backyard with my baby and he's, he had an asymmetry in his jaw long story short, he had a tumor and I spent, or he still has a tumor. I spent a month and a half in the hospital fighting the healthcare system, which was a nightmare, but also I'm, I'm, 
I take it as like a great, a uh, beautiful lesson because now I feel even more equipped to advocate for mothers and fathers and wow. people in this position. You know, um, it was horrendous. I experienced some like <laughs> fucked up things, um, including a doctor who told me as this growth was going back to my son's throat to come back if he stops breathing and tried to send me home. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was in like a quite literal fight for my son's life and there were babies dying around me. There were grieving mothers. There were priests going up to rooms to read children their last rites. And I was looking at my screen at this outline and I was like, what what am I doing? It doesn't matter. What is the point of this? And I was like, this video could be, this guy is an asshole. The end. Like what? good does it serve for me to inform people of every toxic pastor that exists? I already told y'all how these people are toxic, how to recognize them. And like Divinity told me, I did a completed project. I gave you everything I can. And more than that, I gave resources of people who can give you much more. Like my friend Rocky Roggio is the one doing the documentary 1946. So it's like, go to her. Now you learn, like we're talking about the inch of information I have on something. She will give you the wellspring of knowledge on that. And, And I brought on tons of authors and experts in every field so people could get knowledge elsewhere. And um, yeah, sitting at the hospital, I was like, this does not align with my values at all anymore. And also, no matter how kindly I say this person's an asshole, um, that will ignite rage in other people, which will like compel them to go attack verbally online these figures, which I now know more intimately than ever is extremely toxic and not beneficial. Um, yeah, just really bad. So, um, in the gray came from that because I was going to take a two week hiatus cause you got to produce, produce, produce content all the time. Yep, yep. Turned into a six month hiatus. My dog got hit and run outside of my house. I endured all of this insane drama. God, I'll get chastised for saying the word insane. <sighs> I like, I don't know, it, uh, illogical, yeah. unbased, uh, like whatever it's, it, it's been intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and through all of this, it, it has even more so like firmed my stance in the fact that like, we have to lean into compassion and we have to say, okay, we told you this system is broken or these hundreds of systems are broken. So what's next? How do we actually move towards progress? I told you that sex isn't bad. I told you that about sexual integrity and how to practice that. So here's a porn star. His name is Aaron Smallhands Thompson, and he's amazing. And here's how him and his wife, who's a porn star, talk about sex. And, you know, I can I want to continue doing the same thing that I've done before, but with more expansive conversations, because um, I can talk about Christianity with anyone, but... I, this is one facet of me. It's deeply held and believed, but also, you know, I can only talk about one thing for so long. Yeah. So in the gray, God is gray. Also everything, all of these systems that are crumbling around us, we're only going to move towards progress to me and to many people that I admire. I see many, many other creators diving into the gray and speaking about the gray, even if their podcast isn't named that way. And those are the people that I'm looking to as mentors right now, because if it's not compassion based, if I'm not seeing forward momentum or the possibility of it, 
you know, that's not a voice I'm interested in. I want to know what's next. What do we do now? I think it's, um, thank you for sharing all that. Let me stop. Let me, thank you for sharing all that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. For what's been happening with your son, your dog. Yeah. Oh, my dog is so sweetie. He just like the, the person left on the side of the road on Thanksgiving. Is the dog still alive? No. no I, I laid with him on the ground Good while Lord. he was dying. It was, yeah, horrible. Super fun. Yeah. I'm so sorry about all that. So I just wanted to say that before I move on because you shared some heavy things. I want to be like, okay, on to the next thing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. When I process traumas, I'm like, that, whatever. And people are like, hey, that's terrible. No, and I'm just like, like, okay. Sit, sit in it. <laughs> Sit in it for a second because that's like super, super fucking heavy. Yeah. Um, I did. Okay. Makes total sense. I love how you're listening to this voice, Divinity. Project's done. The end. You even tried to force it a little bit and then finally it's like, no, it's the end. The end. Move on. Yeah. And it's this moving on is, is broadening your ability to talk about almost anything now, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that'll be really good. Um very practical question something you just said you interviewed this porn star and his wife who's also a porn star um what was the i wonder i haven't seen the full interview i haven't watched full interview yet you're a bad but uh, i know i'll get there i promise (laughs) um what's been the feedback on that because again it's not like you're having them on to chastise them (laughs) you're having them on to talk about their story and talk about the implications of that kind of a marriage and the good and all like so but but because of your coming out of God is gray, you have people all over the spectrum, the Christian spectrum and otherwise, following your content. So what's the feedback been on putting that piece of content out? Uh, yeah, I think that first to clarify, I didn't. I got to t- uh, talk to Joanna Angel, but she wasn't a part of the interview. But it was about their story as well. Um, but with everything that I had been going through, it kind of all culminated to this day on Thanksgiving. I have my dog die on the street with me. And when I came back in my house, I made some very firm decisions. Um, and then I had to do an interview with another, not everyone is a sex worker this season, but this is another sex worker, Tilly Lawless. I interviewed amazing interview. So wonderful. I really wanted to ask her questions that I had, that I wanted to ask a sex worker that I hadn't heard people ask. Like, Aside from like, are you traumatized? Like, you know, not that stuff. Like treating them like a fully embodied person. Um, She's brilliant. But when my my friend Lauren and I watched it back together, just just whatever, edit or whatever, she was like, Brenda, you look like you're sitting there with like all your defensives down and you're just like, wish a bitch would. (laughs) That's hilarious. And she was like, that should be your motto for this season. And... It's true. Like in some ways it's like, you know, when you have all these reckonings and you're realizing like harm you've done, whether intentionally or inadvertently or without you realizing it, like after a while you, and you keep standing up and standing up again, like it's kind of like wish a bitch would like, if you do not like me moving more towards compassion and you still want me to come for the pastors, Mm. that's okay. It's not the space for you anymore. And there are plenty of people out there who are still doing that work. And frankly, I really believe that deconstructing any system, especially if it's a beloved held system or a system that you've benefited from, like your uncle is a hero cop and you've heard that story your whole life. It's going to be harder for that person to process Black Lives Matter than 
than the, like the average Joe. So just giving people that space to recognize that it's a grief journey. You have denial, rage, fear, anger, depression, all of it. And this is why I am not going to judge anyone who is projecting their anger or their depression or whatever they're in. It doesn't mean I'm better than them or anything, but like there are places for you on every part of that journey. And if you are just learning that pastors are toxic, like, yeah, you probably should be ingesting some of that content to really recognize what, what, what sea you're swimming in that you might not have recognized. So all of those are valid places, but I always expected that like, if you pivot or you do a new thing as an artist, there's going to be people that are like, Oh, I came for that. I'm not here for this. And that is, that's perfectly fine. And then as a, if you have a business hat on, you're like any business, you're going to have a loss after your investment. And then you see if it grows from there or if it doesn't. And, um, obviously my prayer and hope is that it does grow from here because there is so much that I want to learn still. And, um, there are people in the internet space, the metaverse, if you will, who don't accept mistakes and human error. And I'm not interested in appeasing those people anymore yeah. either, because if you're not giving me permission to make mistakes, then you're probably not giving yourself permission to make mistakes, which means you're probably not having honest conversation with your friends of color or your black friends. Because it's so terrifying when you're sitting there like, I'm not allowed to say anything or can I, am I using this language properly? Like that said, like it's also consenting relationships. Like you have to have a mutually consenting agreement with someone like you're my black friend. Do I have permission to ask you really ignorant questions? Are you down to educate me? I'm in these things or just throw a book at my head and tell me to shut up. Like (laughs) you lead the way. But when I have friends who have been like, yes, I absolutely consent to that because they know I have a platform and they are equally devoted to me representing these ideas properly. Like those people are investing in me and I deeply appreciate that. And at the same time, if any black friend is like, I do not have time, capacity, space or energy for that. It's like, of course you don't totally fine, but it has to be consensual accountability is a consensual interaction, at least when it's effective. You can't have a lack of consent because then that's just appeasement and bowing down to somebody. Like you have to let people feel it in their bones and really get it. And that takes time. So what you and I are doing that's common that I, or that's in common that I think is so beautiful is like you said, bringing on the experts and being like, hi, I'm the idiot. Yep. (laughs) teach me. And in that we both will make mistakes and already have had made mistakes. And we already have people who hate us for making mistakes. And what can you do? Because I want to keep doing this. Yeah. I have one more question. No, I have to go right now. (laughs) The question is, are you hopeful? Like, do you feel hope? in general, specifically about your work, but also in general, the tra- if not, why? If so, why? And what are the things that keep you feeling hopeful? I, sometimes I think people cheat by just having a personality that leans towards that. Like I am a very forgiving person and I could be all self-righteous about that, but honestly, it just has always come naturally to me. So I can barely count that as a virtue of mine. Um, and 
positivity and glass half fullism and believing that people can change is something that I've always believed in since I was a little girl. Like when I prayed for the Iraq war to end, like by my bedside, I actually believed my prayer could do something. And that is such a ridiculous and beautiful amount of positivity for a little kid to have about a world war or not a world war, but a war in the world. Um, And I think that we might as well, like, I don't know. We might as well be positive because this earth is dying and we don't even know how much longer we'll have here, especially if we don't pick up and make some massive changes, extreme changes. Um, but then I, I meet the kids in these younger generations and remember the concept of indigo children, like back in the eighties and nineties, like they go on talk shows and be like, this child is wise beyond their years and has ideas for social change or inventing things that you could never fathom. I really do believe that every generation comes in to teach the older generations and they can get all high and mighty about it and mad at us for not catching up fast enough. But like there's some sort of internal knowledge. And then the more that we heal, obviously the more advanced that our children will be with trauma informed work and embodiment and sex education, you know, like we give gifts to the next generation based on all of the traumas and the things that we've learned to help them not suffer the same things. And I think just by nature of that, they, they can be more healed and whole and they can be the ones to invent something no one had imagined before that does save this planet in the nick of time. And that is like how hopeful that I am because I don't know, we're all going to die anyway. Might as well just believe. Might as well go out guns blazing. (laughs) I hate that phrase because I hate guns, but you know, yeah, like go out if you're going to go out. I mean, there is that, there is that, classic movie scene right where the guy knows he's gonna die so he just goes all out right in that last like you know in that blaze of glory wait which movie is this i don't know it's just like i've seen it a hundred times in movies where like you know they're they're about to die and so they're like fuck it and they just run out there right and then they end up going down but they get 10 like again i i hate violence but it's that same (laughs) idea i think that's right where it's like we could be uh we could lack hope and we could say, every, you know, we could Eeyore our way through life. Like, oh, poor me. Like, nothing's working and everything's terrible and we're burnt. We're killing the earth and our kids are this and our adults are that and our politicians suck. Or we could say, I don't know. Just not even just take the planet out. Take our environment or whatever the future holds, world wars, or just you could not be morbid. You could get in your car and get hit by somebody on the way home. This could be it right now. Forget your dog. You, like, gone. So why not? I, I like that, that, that. I like that attitude of like, why not go out? With- also, sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 go. Like recognize what it does for your nervous system. Yeah. This is why like I have friends that are called somatic practitioners, Jamie Lee Finch, Tara Tang, beautiful practitioners. And they talk about embodiment. And that is like in most simplest terms, you just recognizing the messages that your body sends you. And even you just mentioning those things that are wrong, like I notice every my energy drain and it makes me want to like go to this bar over here and just like chug something um, because I don't know, it's okay to be informed of those things. But then when you're like, okay, but let me look at it. Who Who is doing this innovative thing that is helping the ocean? Yeah. Who is, you know, whatever, the one 
person that stood against the rest of the vote and said, no, this isn't right. And who's going to be following that person in the next couple of years? And who will they inspire to, to be different? So when you think of those things and you look at, even statistically, some things just look almost provably hopeful because you're like, wait a second, you know, like judging by like how many people in this generation do really care about human rights. When I go on TikTok and I see people like kids with, um, it's amazing. Tourette's or like I saw the DJ who, um, I think is like paralyzed. I don't know exactly what's going on, but like there's all of this representation on there that in my high school, those people would have been made fun of relentlessly told like to get on the short bus being in, classes that are separate from us because like it was like even that like that wasn't that long ago that we were treating disabled people secondary citizens yeah, it's, it's wild right yeah and now seeing that those same demographics of people proudly being on tiktok and being followed by millions of people and all this encouragement from their peers like i love you you're beautiful it's it's Holy incredible. Shit. i saw it wasn't with somebody that had a disability but i saw one just this morning that went incredibly viral, millions of views. It was this young girl, didn't have any followers. She's probably, I mean, she could have looked young, but I would put her in the 17 to 20 range. Very young, baby on her hip, single mom. She's like, I don't know anybody. I don't have anybody to help me. I'm about to get kicked out of my house. I don't want to be fucking homeless. Uh (laughs) Like, do if you have any, I've been trying to get food stamps. I've been trying to get this. I've been trying to get help. I've been trying to get housing. I can't get, nobody's listening to me. Can anybody help? There's like 14, when I saw it this morning, millions of views, 14,000 comments, 500,000 likes, ton of shares. And, you know, her comments obviously at the top, she commented saying, I got everything. Like I got all the help I needed. <laughs> like here's this girl who years ago had, would it, she probably would be homeless. Maybe the baby dies. Horrible things happen because who's going to listen to her? Now, just because she has a phone, and access to this free app called TikTok, she goes on, begs for help, and she gets it. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. There's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Yeah. And my nervous system hates Instagram. When I, like, even if I'm not getting trashed on there, I still, it just doesn't, I don't like it. TikTok, I go, I do it before I go to bed because it makes me so dang happy. Yep, I can go to sleep with a smile on my face. Now I can- And you have to curate it properly so you don't get trash. You don't get in the algorithm, 100%. (laughs) The algorithm knows. But if you're in the positivity algorithm, if you're in the hopeful algorithm, it'll keep giving you shit that like makes your heart sing. Yeah, it's kind of like what you feed it, it gives back to you pretty, which is true of almost everything. Two hours. Um, let's call Dang. it quits. Okay. Sorry, um, everybody. <laughs> no, not sorry. You, they're still listening because that was good, right? Uh, thank you so much. I assume God is gray is going to be like, we'll see name changes and stuff over the next while, right? To end the gray or is God is gray staying in the gray as a separate new project or you don't we'll know. see. I'm trying to like, yeah, gently bring people along and I want them to be kicking and screaming. And I don't want to say that I'm disavowing a persona or anything. It's just like, to, I really see it as my, an art project. And now I want to see if y'all would also like to see my second art project. So for now, <laughs> if you're just getting to know Brenda, go, f- everything is God is gray still. So go follow God is gray or in the gray. I think both will come up. Oh, in the gray will come up as well. Yeah. Cool. And read on her knees. It changed people that I love their lives. Um, hopefully it'll change yours as well. Thank you so much. Love you. <laughs> Thank you. 
dear friends, thank you for showing up and for spending time with Brenda and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadamn.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.